I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. In this episode, we talk to Ruth Kennedy, a junior barrister at the start of her career, who tells us about her commercial practice. We hear too from Master Michael Bauscher, a procurement silk, who gives us a peek into the world of procurement and explains why you need to keep your Sunday evenings free for running through the basics of civil procedure of England and Wales on the phone to Sweden. Ruth Kennedy was called to the bar in 2015, so the experience of choosing a practice area and getting pupillage remains horribly fresh in her mind, I suspect. (laughs) Ruth now practices at 2TG, specialising in commercial litigation with a particular interest in private international law, employment, commercial fraud, insurance and sports law. But she also has a sideline in public law. She's currently junior counsel to the Lambeth Investigation of the ICSA, Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. Ruth, thanks for joining us on the Pupillage podcast. Commercial law encompasses a huge array of different practice areas, really. I wonder if you can tell our listeners who might not be familiar with them what what sort of areas it does include. Yeah, it's hugely varied. So you've got, for example, insurance disputes, which are all about coverage. So when an individual or a company might want to make a claim against their insurer under their indemnity policy, um, the insurance company may want to dispute whether or not they've agreed to cover it. So you've got those kind of technical construction points, but you also have fraud cases. So they can be quite fast moving where you want to get an injunction of freezing order to stop someone um, disposing of assets that you say they managed to get by defrauding your client. Um, So you've got fraud. You've also got things like professional negligence that broadly fall within commercial practice. So when you say that a solicitor has behaved naughtily or maybe not done their job as well as they should have or any other professional. Um, And then I suppose it also cross cuts um, with public law in that frequently commercial companies will want to... uh, bring claims that judicially review things that the government have done. Uh, So commercial law encompasses quite a wide range of different types of disputes. So it sounds like it's sort of torts, contracts, criminal law and public law. (laughs) Yes. And I think most people, I mean, I'm still very junior, um, but most people I think eventually find one or two particular areas that they really like in commercial practice and focus on those. Some people don't. um, But again, you kind of get a feel for what you like and what you're good at by doing it, I think. Yeah. And who tend to be your clients? Um, (laughs) Complete vast array of people. So uh, recently we had, I think it was around 2,000 Zambian villagers who were clients. Um, And then last year I did an injunction case where my clients were uh, two former professional footballers who had um, been involved in teaching recruitment and there was a company that was trying to get an injunction over them. Um, Also, individual employees, companies defending employment claims. Um, So quite a wide array of different people and organisations. So it's not just big multinational corporations? No, What can you tell our listeners about your sort of everyday professional life? So what what does it look like, your practice over the course of, I don't know, two, three months? My practice can be very varied. uh, And I think most commercial practitioners this is true of. um, Well, some commercial practitioners will, at my stage, I think, 
primarily be a junior in a massive, massive case um, or one or two cases, and that can mean that their practice is predominantly paper-based. Because I do commercial work, but also other types of work, it means that I have a mixture of working as a junior on bigger cases and also appearing in court, whether it's the employment tribunal or the county court in my own right. So every week for me is quite different. So sometimes if I'm preparing for a big case, I can go months without being in court because it's more important that you focus on that one individual case and preparing it properly. And what, what would you, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. what would you be doing during that time? During that time. Um, so you would be reviewing the evidence. You would be making sure that you're on top of uh, the bundles because in big commercial disputes frequently you can have uh, tens of thousands of pages that you've got to go through you'd be assisting your leader with preparing for cross-examination um, researching legal points I mean really when you're appearing as a junior in these big cases you're trying to be as much on top of the documents and the law as possible so that when your leader turns round in the middle of court you can just hand them the answer um, or at least that's how I see it. other people might disagree so that's what you'd be doing um, but for my own part as I say I do a mixture of court work and working on these big cases so at the moment I am working on something uh, but not it's not taking up all my time so I'm in court maybe once or twice a week I've got an employment case coming up next month which is going to take five days so a few days prep before that um, but that's why I like my practice because I don't think I would be happy just working on huge disputes constantly and not doing my own court work but equally I like the intellectual demand of doing the bigger more difficult cases as a junior and I suppose you have the advantage then of learning from your leaders as well exactly it certainly sounds like it must be great to have you as a junior. Turn around and there's the answer. But that's definitely what I aspire to. I can't say whether or not I succeed. <laughs> and how does that sort of practice affect your lifestyle and your work-life balance? It's a good question. So sometimes, especially in preparations for an injunction or something that's happening very quickly, um, you know, it'd be wrong to say that I'm not working all hours because, for example, you might find out that you're going for an injunction on the Wednesday and you're in court on the Friday and it does mean that you pretty much have to work round the clock and I have a very understanding fiance who looks after our cat um, but um, those are not that's not always the case um, and so I think one of the things I'm trying to become better at is when you've got downtime and you're less busy actually enjoying that time and taking that time to go and do other things outside of work um, but for the most part, I would say that I work between half past eight and 6.30 in the evening. Ruth, can I ask you about earnings? Mm -hmm. What sort of earnings can someone in your area of practice expect to generate in, let's say, I don't know, the first one to five years of practice? Um, so I think if you have a commercial practice, you can expect to bill around 100 grand a year uh, in your first and second year of practice and that goes up steadily uh, obviously that will depend on precisely what you decide that you want to do out of the wide array of commercial work but I think that would probably be quite standard um, by the time you're at five years I would say it's probably most likely that you'd be earning around or billing around 160,000 a year that's the 
other thing for people who are listening to note that there's a difference between what you bill and what you receive because as a barrister you might not get paid for some work that you do for six months so um, when sets of chambers are talking to you about earnings because I'm sure some people listening will have many offers and they need to make a decision uh, it's important to ask whether or not when people talk about money whether they're talking about billing or they're talking about yeah exactly yeah Thank you. And have you any comments about sort of the beyond the five year mark? If someone would like to have a practice, you know, as you say, working 8.30 to 6.30, accepting that there will be weekends where you have to work extremely hard or periods of two to three weeks where you have to work really hard. Have you any idea what they might expect to earn sort of in the five to 15 year mark? Um, I think it goes up steadily from there. I'm not actually quite sure because I think that's where people do start to diverge quite a lot depending on the type of work they do. If you do quite high pressure and injunctive relief work, you tend to earn more because it reflects the fact that it's a very stressful area to practice in. Um, and a lot of the time, especially with freezing injunctions, your personal conduct of a without notice hearing, for example, will be under scrutiny. And so to a certain extent, I think it's fair to say that your what you get paid for those hearings reflects the stress and the personal anxiety. Yeah. And at the very top end, the sky's the limit. I mean, you hear yeah. the stories of the, the fat cap commercial barristers earning more than a million pounds a year is that are those stories accurate as far as I know yes <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask you again in 20 years yeah. time <laughs> um, what, what are the things then that you love about a commercial practice um, I think as we've touched on before I really like the variety of it because when people talk about commercial practice um, it means a lot of different things to lots of different people and actually what some people would define as a commercial practice other people might say well no actually that's an employment practice or that's professional negligence or it's commercial fraud um, and so what I like about it is the variety but also the fact that um, you know your advice is taken very seriously by your clients which is very stressful and that's the other thing that I would say is it's not for everyone because when you especially when you're advising or even when you're appearing in court or especially when you're appearing in court your clients have a lot of money riding on these disputes and they do things on the basis of what you tell them and so I would say a lot of people won't have the stomach or won't enjoy it uh, you know there are nights I think where most barristers whatever the practice areas have sleepless nights worrying about their cases and I think that's all the more true and commercial, um, where there are huge, huge sums of money um, in dispute at times. And is there anything that you think people thinking about a commercial practice ought to consider carefully before deciding on that career path? I think it would probably be the stress um, and the hours that, as I said, are not always the case, but are a hallmark of some periods of your life if you choose to be a commercial barrister. Um, and so think about that quite carefully. But at the same time, actually being a barrister and being self-employed, I think most people invest a lot of time in, in their job anyway, so I don't think that's exclusive to commercial practice. Thinking about other commercial practitioners who you really admire, and you think are really sort of truly excellent, what is it about them? What aptitudes do they have? What are their skill sets that you think have contributed to their success? Um, I think... Primarily, the ability to take, you know, 40 bundles, 
get to grips with the material and summarise the case into two or three small points and explain it very, very simply and in a way that's helpful to the judge. That's the first thing. I mean, the second thing I would say is with the true greats, it's the charm and, you know, everyone talks about the art of oral advocacy um, and I can see both of you are smiling. <laughs> um, but, you know, everyone always talks about it and it's that thing that people can't really put a finger on that makes someone who's, you know, really good at getting to grips with the detail a truly excellent advocate because of their style, the way they come across, the way that they're able to persuade the judge. Um, and it's difficult to put that into words, I think. You know it when you see it, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. you love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there any work experience that you would recommend for people who are thinking about a career at the commercial bar? I think any experience that you can get in business or in a corporate solicitor's firm is probably helpful because you want to try and understand the types of things that interest your clients because so often, um, especially in kind of pure commercial work, the client is not interested in the interesting legal principles that you are. What they want is a result. Um, And if you can help understand what it is your client is trying to get at or what drives them, then I think that's really helpful to giving your client the extra mile of service that they will want. And also the other thing is being able to analyse things excellently, which I think is the key thing that you need to succeed at the commercial bar. Are there particular types of chambers? If you want to do commercial law, should you be looking for a more general mixed set or should you aim for somewhere that's a bit more specialised? I think it completely depends on who you are as a person and what you want. So if you want to just fight about really big disputes and learn the trade from great practitioners, then you probably want to go to a very specialised commercial set, which doesn't put so much focus on getting you into court or tribunals in your early years. But I would say that I didn't think that that would make me happy because I want I always knew that I'd want the combination of both but that you know some people enjoy that practice um and so I think you need to think quite carefully about what it is you want from a career at the bar and I think it's important to think about that apart from dressing it up as a pupil I think a lot of the time when I speak to people who are applying for pupillage they think about how to sell themselves rather than what they actually want and at the end of the day being a barrister is a great job but it's just a job and it has to make you happy and give you a fulfilling sense of purpose in life, or at least I think it does. So it's important to be honest with yourself about what you actually want from the job. And if you think that you want the independence of appearing in court on your own, I would say applying to a set like us would be beneficial for you. Um, But if you know you just want to deal with really difficult, thorny issues of law and you're happy to be a junior for a couple of years, then by all means, I think going to a specialist set is a good thing to do. That's great advice. Brilliant. Ruth Kennedy, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. I first met Master Bowsher in the departure lounge of the George Best Belfast City Airport in about 2008. I was there because I was involved in a public inquiry and he was there because he was doing something complicated to do with procurement. He is in fact called the Northern Irish Bar and the Irish Bar as well as the English Bar and practices in both Northern Ireland and the Republic as well as this jurisdiction. He took silk in 2006 and became a bencher of Middle Temple in 2014. 
He practices from Moncton Chambers, and as well as being a procurement competition and commercial law specialist, his website intriguingly records that he has become increasingly involved in matters involving the space sector. So firstly, Master Bauscher, is that space as in outer space? It is space as in outer space, um, which I think is actually probably a growing, a growing area of legal work for people. It's going to be, uh, going to be a lot of interesting new work. Uh, in, in that area, uh, because we can't live without the exploitation of space. I was completely fascinated to, to read that, because when I decided to become a lawyer, I don't know, however long ago, in 2001, my, my friend at the time said, oh, wow, you could do something really cool like space law. And I thought, <laughs> I don't think there is anything such as space law, but apparently there now there is. is. So. There is. Um, for those who are interested, UCL do an introductory course every October, three-day course, which I heartily rec- recommend. To come back down to earth, let's talk about the mainstay of mm-hmm. your practice. What, what is, how would you describe it? Um, it is to, so let me take three steps back. About 15 to 20% of the economy is contracts let by government, utilities, etc., etc., who are in one way or another either using public money or delivering a public service. Um, that is nearly all, for one reason or another, regulated, largely because it is our money which is being spent on our behalf, wisely or otherwise. And... Um, there is now a developed area of law regulating what can go in those contracts, how those contracts are tendered, who wins those contracts, and so on and so forth. At one level, it is the product of the EU. The, 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 the legislation which we now have is um, mostly an implementation of EU directives, um, but both historically and sort of legal architecturally, that itself is, it's not quite as simple as that. We've always had some public procurement law. Um, Samuel Pepys had public procurement law when he was running the procurement of the Royal Navy in the 17th century. Um, And EU public procurement law is within the WTO, Government Procurement Agreement. That's a sort of long background, legal background. What it means day to day is... Lots of litigation about who should have won a particular government contract or about the terms of a tender. So it might be someone says, you've gone out for tender and said that you want a widget complying with this. That's not fair because the only person who can do that is him and I've got a better widget. You should go back and start again and ask for tenders on on a wider basis. Or you've misunderstood, you've misscored the tender, you've, you've gone through an elaborate process to decide who the winner is, um, and you misunderstood it, and I should have won and he should have lost, and lots of money flows from that. And then there, there are sort of big policy issues as well. You also get people, there are, and there isn't enough litigation about this that for st- structural reasons. There are uh, people complaining about um, the policy assumptions in certain procurement. So one of the big things which I think is going to hugely grow is um, whether or not the procurement should have a more environmental or social content. So I can see in the next 10 years there'll be a lot of litigation, people saying, well, it's all very well to buy a bridge, but your specification doesn't adequately take account of 
the, the overall cost of the concrete, the overall environmental cost of yeah. the concrete, or what it did to the flow of the river, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but obviously that creates a huge number of, um, sort of basic civil procedure rules, like who has standing to take those points, and so on and so forth. So there's a sort of, you get crossovers into lots of other areas of law, into competition law, environmental law, employment law, um, but all around using public procurement. The, the, the basic point is you've got this enormous amount of money and people are trying to use the money to do things and sometimes they do it wrong. Who then would be your clients? Can you give our listeners an idea of who, who you'd be representing <coughs> and advising? Both purchasers and sellers. Most people try to, I think most people at the bar try to stay on sort of be on both sides of the of that of the field a lot of solicitors have tended to gravitate to being either purchaser solicitors or seller solicitors which makes sense but i think from the bar's point of view we i think we do better by doing both my own view um and so you know clients who would be a a large government department um a local authority um an nhs trust um a large hospital um, but right down to really quite small outfits, um, you know, really quite small public bodies, Qu- quite surprising sometimes who gets covered. And then also international organisations, you know, the European Space Agency has its own separate procurement law, um, for example, um, the European Central Bank. And some of these bodies have their own separate rules. And then on the other side, it would be almost anyone who sells something to the state so that could be a pharmaceutical company a construction company um it's often entities involved in social services so it's quite often third sector organizations who are interested in you know delivering social care to whatever so um you know there's a a really very big, broad broad area of, of, of interests. Your practice sounds fascinating, but I think I'm probably right in guessing that you didn't lie awake as a small child dreaming of a procurement practice. So how did you choose this area of law? I, don't, it, I didn't. It chose me for various reasons. I thought that I needed to have other opportunities before I settled down. So I went and worked for a, a law firm in Brussels for a while. And one Friday night, I was the last person in the office and the senior partner came in and said, someone's coming in on Monday, they're doing something. It's called public procurement. No one in the office knows anything about it. You've got a weekend. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll be the office expert by Monday. <laughs> oh, it's the Friday night calls. Exactly. The best exactly. And the worst. Exactly. And of course, as, as in all areas of law, you're the expert if you know one, book, one article more than anyone else in the room. <laughs> So that was that. So that was that. But you must have really enjoyed it. You, there must have been something about it that you really loved. Um, or not. It, you know, I think, there, I think it was. I think it took me a while to get, get the hang of it. I think what I really like about it is it takes you into a lot of policy areas. I mean, I think some lawyers find it a bit challenging because it, it, it sort of straddles private and public law. Yes, there's some quite hard-edged legal problems, but it is all about driving policy. And I've always liked the idea of being involved in areas of law where the law affects people's behaviour. Yes. And this really does affect, you know, you are, you are little tweaks in hard law and also in sort of soft law policy type measures dramatically affects... Um, the behaviours of people, but also outcomes. I mean, you can see it, and I do a, you know, do a lot of work in the, health, in the health sector, and you can see over time how different approaches to procurement in different places have affected the way in which health services are delivered, and sometimes even health outcomes. 
Um, and that's quite, it's sometimes a bit sad because that was a, you clearly have not your, learnt your mistakes. But, um, but it's, it's interesting. And I think well, that whole process of law as a, as a sort of dynamic tool, is, I think, is really interesting. And you said that for some lawyers it's quite challenging. What do you think of the skills that somebody thinking of making their way into this area should be focusing on and thinking about? The pure legal skills, you, for years to come, it will be appropriate to have a reasonably good knowledge of EU law, whatever happens, because it will, you know, unless we have a complete revolution, this will be an, an emanation of retained EU law for years to come. Um, uh, at a sad and core level, a, no, a reasonable knowledge of French or German is no bad thing because a lot of the materials will still be not translated into English. That's really interesting. So actually a second language... A second language is no bad thing. It's helpful. A lot, of the inter- a lot of them international measures. In terms of broader skills, I mean, I think a, a willingness to engage with policy in, in the way that public lawyers often find easy, but I think, you know, sometimes people from a more sort of black... You know, there are some commercial lawyers that feel a little bit uneasy sometimes dealing with the sort of softer public law type issues. You need to be happy to jump between the two. Yes, I understand, yes. Thinking then about somebody in your field who you admire, what is it that you think that they do particularly well that means that they're excellent at their job? One characteristic which a couple of people I know are very good at doing is explaining to a very commercially minded businessman what it is that government wants. And that is can be incredibly hard. I see. And, and being almost in the course of either... Advi- and that can happen in, 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 either an, in either an advisory or in a contentious scenario. Someone who is only motivated... He's got a fantastic idea who, which could save lives or radically affect the way that, you know, security is improved in, in difficult situations or something, but is just totally focused on it either as a either as a technical person or as a commercial person and just doesn't get that civil servants don't see things that way civil servants have a range of other pressures and and that can happen as i can it can happen when you're in court just saying wait a minute here you've got to understand what they're what they're doing here just take a take a deep breath you need to understand this is what they're really looking for I see, yeah. So being able to understand uh, and communicate across yeah. different tribes, if I can put it like that. Yes. Now, there's probably a, there's probably a reciprocal skill of, of explaining to public sector people <laughs> what, the, what, the other, what, the, what the other people want, want to do. I can't think of many people who are very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say no more. <laughs> um, we've heard time and again that there's no such thing as a typical day for most barristers. Yeah. What does a typical week or typical month look like in your practice? Um, quite a few case management conferences. Um, I mean, I probably do fewer trials than I used to, and that's partly deliberate, um, because most trials are done, if they're not expedited, then done on fairly short notice. And so uh, they just, they can be just physically demanding so there's a sort of I try to regulate how many trials I do a year um, 
there will be a series of case management conferences which tend to raise a sort of there's a sort of cycle of points about confidentiality so one of the recurring issues will be about conf- who, who can see what all the documents tend to be very confidential there'll be a whole cycle of, of issues around can the contract be signed before or after the trial um, so that's so you might in the course of a month get probably seven or eight days doing that sort of case management conference and there may be a couple of short trials on sort of you know a, a, a point of law you know is this is this point discriminatory or or whatever and then as i say i now tried to get it down to about every couple of months there'll be a trial which is two or three weeks long um, and then between that there will be many days of prep advice um and a lot of it is just going around and there's a lot of travel involved a lot of it is going around to see you know l- large decision making groups which is often sort of you know seven people from different departments of a local authority or from different departments of a trust or so- an NHS trust or something like that who are all trying to decide are we going to do this or are we going to do that quite sort of big strategic question about how they're going to approach the outsourcing of this service or something like that so then what are the implications for your for your lifestyle you mentioned travel and i can imagine that yes two to three week trials obviously very demanding what what sort of impact does that have on your lifestyle um it can be pretty exhausting i mean i've why i've sort of scaled i've consciously tried to limit Yes. Or control, not limit, control the work that I do. Um, and as you know, that's almost impossible. But it's, uh, <laughs> so much easier but you, said it's, than done. It's, exactly. It's asp- the aspiration. I mean, there was, you know, th- there was one period where I had three expedited trials back to back in the middle of a winter. And I think it took me, I think it took me half a year to get healthy again you know yeah, just yes. sort of the, the toll you know that you know it's like that the toll that it takes yeah. and you sort of think it should, this should I, I should be able to do this but actually it just it just is it's completely exhausting um though actually the biggest lifestyle thing that's a simple point is that the limitation period for any litigation in this area is 30 days oh goodness so your wow. whole life oh is God. is sort of getting a whole load of papers which the client has t- hadn't had time to write, read, the solicitors haven't had time to read, and you're having to decide whether to bring a claim Gosh. in a very short period. I suppose because, of course, the, you know, the minute the contract's signed, work starts being done, and it becomes very difficult <coughs> yeah. to, to change. Like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, for our listeners, to give you an idea of how that limitation period compares, judicial review um, have claims have to be brought promptly, but in any event, within three months. Human rights claims tend to be within a year. Personal injury claims tend to be three years, and negligence, you're looking at six years. So 30 days is pretty pretty quick. Yeah, and, and in practical terms, it's often 10 days because there's a, a period for within which... The, there's a shorter period I won't explain the technicalities but but so there's a lot of very quick judgment that you have to make and you are you know what it's like you're you're stuck with the the great thing with a litig- limitation judgment is you make the call and you're stuck with it for the rest of the litigation and you're spending the rest <laughs> of the litigation why did we do that <laughs> why am I why am I argu- make, make, having to make this argument in such a peculiar way oh yes that's because we missed that that's because we missed that limitation period <laughs> do, do you get any warning that there is um, a decision that is going to be made and therefore may be subject to challenge 
or, n- or not? Or is it sometimes, very much... Sometimes, but a lot of it comes out of a clear blue sky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so I have a lot of clients who will, you know, who have come to me before who will often expect to win and will come at the last minute. Um, some of the more challenging ones are often the foreigners. So a lot of the clients are foreign clients, and they tend to leave it to the very last minute. Um, and so you're often having to explain the absolute basics at six o'clock at night on a Sunday evening and the claim has to be put in on the Mondays. The number of times you're sort of explaining to a Swedish client sort of on a Sunday evening, you know, sort of, this is how a claim form works and this is, let's let's do a two-hour lecture on civil procedure rules (laughs) and what an interim, how an interim injunction works and, you know, what across... You let me know when you were doing those talks. (laughs) I put it to phone in. It's a bit... It's a bit sort of a bit. Anyway, it, 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 it all makes work for the working man to do, and all of that sort of thing. Very but, exciting, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but, quite, but but you know, there's a, you're dealing often with very high up people. I mean, you were talking about why is the subject fun. One of the nice things, one of the, I think, one of the other things I really enjoy about the subject is that is that more often than not, you are dealing with the, the decision makers. This isn't. You're not dealing with a case. In, some other areas of work that I have been involved in in my, in, my, in my during my career, you did sometimes feel as if you were dealing with the orphan dispute in which no one wanted to have any responsibility for, and the person and the client responsible for this was the um, the best will in the world, the bottom of the heap, who was the last person to be left in charge of this rather horrible thing, which everyone just wished would go away. By and large, on both sides you'll get the attention of the you know the, a key senior person because this really matters if if, if it doesn't matter they won't bother to pick up the phone one thing that i think students are often shy about asking and so Beatrice and I are trying to ask it on their behalf it's about earnings mm-hmm. levels of earnings what sort of um level can juniors expect to earn in their first few years in practice and how high did those figures go for the most successful silks you will probably never get well I would, you'll never get onto a fat cat list, I don't think. You might get onto a government fat cat list because there may, you may end up doing one or two cases for a government department which pushes you into the sort of, you know, the highest earners from central government this year were so-and-so. Um, and I can't remember what numbers, what, what, where that takes you in terms of numbers. But you're, so you're not going to be in the sort of the 25 members of the bar who earn more than whatever it is, one and a half million. But you're certainly, the, the top-end aspiration will be a mid-number of hundreds of thousands, if I can put it that way. Yes. Uh, and I think you would probably, if you could get into doing a reasonable amount of this work early on, you could probably get into a six-figure number within two or three years of... Of earning, I mean, you could be you could be earning compar- at a comparable level to what a, a magic circle um, newly qualified is earning um, within a year or two, I would think. And, and is it possible to get into this sort of work in the early years of practice, or is it something that tends to come later in practice? Um, there aren't many chambers doing this, which is a, raises a number of wider questions. In the chambers in which it is done, you can get into this very quickly. There is, at the moment, at least, so much work to be done. And, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity to get in as sort of, uh, as sort of first and second junior. I think 
it's perhaps a corollary of what I've said about the sort of the importance of the cases to the people. I think that the problem we have at the moment is getting people from being an active junior to being the frontline advocate. Um, it works. I mean, the good thing is there are quite a lot of sort of, you know, there's a lot of mid-level contracts, you know. Seriously, we have cases about lawn mowing contracts, you know. And that, that level, you know, there's quite good work for people three or four years qualified, but it's, it is getting that step up into, into actually doing it, being, being, it being your cases, is not so easy. And for listeners who are listening and think, actually, this does sound really amazing, are there any suggestions you have for work experience that would help them be appealing to a chamber such as yours? Yes, I mean, I think working for a GLD, government legal department, is not a bad idea. Working in the legal department of a large, competent public institution, and that's obviously quite a loaded description, um, uh, would be a good thing. You know, I mean, I can think of a number of local authorities or NHS trusts where you would quite quickly get responsibility to see important things happening. Yes. And that's the difficulty about, about recommending that as a path, I find, is I, I, don't know, I don't know what your feeling is. You know, if you say to someone, actually, you'll get good experience with the GLD, and some people do, and some people have just a miserable, miserable time doing drivel. Yes. And it's very hard to know how to control that. Yes. Um, but say, you know, if you go and work for one of the, in the legal department for one of the big, um, one of the big municipal authorities, one of the big local authorities, then, the, you know, you'll get fantastic experience doing that sort of, doing this sort of stuff, because that's what they do day in, day out. Yes, I see. Um, the other thing to be said is that, you know, some of the, some big providers of services will have sort of positions as sort of legal executives and things like that. So um, some of the service providers to government and things like that. Um, that will certainly give you an insight. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, there are, there are, well, I'll blow my own trumpet, you know, there are courses available on EU public procurement law. If you think it's interesting, you know, I, I direct a distance learning course at King's College London, you know, um, and it actually just learning more about the law is no bad thing. There are a couple of courses. There's my course, which is obviously the best. Um, there, are, there are one or two other competitors as well. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Master Bashir, for talking to us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Doffirada. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode.